Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld, where we continue our series, A Well-Researched Christmas Today, with a message entitled, Zachariah's Song. So let's turn to Luke chapter 1, verses 57 to 80, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. There is a certain myth that's repeated so often that I fear, you know, many people have just come to believe it. It's the myth that you can do anything or be anything that you want to be. You'd be a rocket scientist. You could, you'd be the president of the United States or the greatest quarterback the game has ever seen or a movie star. I mean, you get the drift. The only thing that's holding you back, I mean, so the line goes, are your expectations. If you're willing to fight for what you want and what you believe in, You don't have to take no as an answer. Just work hard and tear down societal structures that are keeping you back and just keep believing in yourself and you can achieve anything. But let me add a little dose of cold heart and cruel reality. You know, if you have an IQ of 100, which is, well, that's average, you aren't going to be a physicist or an engineer or someone developing artificial intelligence. But there are a great many other rewarding things that you can become. Yeah, you can work hard and a great attitude will contribute to a great deal of your success, but you can't be anything. There are real ceilings that you're going to hit by the limitations of your genetics and your biology. The data that shows this is true is overwhelming, even while it is highly unpopular. You know, furthermore, if you're now 85 years old, you don't have a great future and you can't be anything you want, at least not here on this earth. That is, if you missed your chance earlier, you're not going to make a comeback. And furthermore, if you're born in and grow up in, say, a country like Malawi, your prospects are greatly reduced by your culture and your economy, something you can't control as compared to, you know, being born and growing up in the United States or Canada or one of the wealthy countries of the world. See, what I'm about to say doesn't take away from human effort or human motivation or strong ethics or seizing opportunities and focus and working hard. But I am saying, and will continue to say it, whatever we are and will be is bounded by the set will of God. No matter how hard you try, if God doesn't will it, it's not going to happen for you. And therefore, it is essential to our happiness and our willingness to be thankful that we accept both our potentialities and our limitations as a gift given to us by an all-wise and knowing God. Now, I say all of that because as we've been researching the Christmas story through the eyes of Dr. Luke, he continuously makes us see not just the birth of Jesus, but also the birth of a man named John. And years later, John, now then a grown man, would rejoice in this truth. You know, for a time, he would become the most powerful and eagerly sought-after preacher in Israel, probably her greatest preacher in her storied history. But no sooner was his ministry flourishing and his impact growing ever greater, when along would come Jesus, who would so eclipse him, and his ministry would be reduced in short order to a shell of its former self. And what should John do about that? Well, if he had been like so many of us are today, who are so committed to the doctrine that every man or woman is the captain of his or her own ship, and that we can make our own future, well, I have no doubt that he would have been devastated and plagued with self-doubts and perhaps even angry and constantly wondering where it all went wrong. 
But when we come to Dr. Luke's well-researched Christmas, to the birth of John, we're going to see how different John's worldview would be than what is so prevalent today. In John chapter 3, verses 26 and 27, John the Baptist's view of the world would be clearly seen. The passage says, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Now that's to say, all that I have become and am able to accomplish comes about because God has chosen this path for me. I mean, did you notice how diametrically opposed those two statements are? You can become anything you want to become. That compared to its opposite. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. It's breathtaking, isn't it? I mean, the difference between this constant mantra, you know, that just believe in yourself, and then John's statement, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You know, John's statement says that we deceive ourselves if we think we can become anything. Instead, God determines our ways. Now, in truth, John's not the first person to say that. Solomon, the king of Israel, said the very same thing in Proverbs 16, verse 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. That's to say, we purpose the direction for our lives, but every single step along the way, the ones we planned for and the ones that took us by surprise, well, those steps were already determined by God. Our future and our present was never in our hands. That was always an illusion. Now, today, as we trace John's birth and his father's reaction to it, along with the prophecy that was uttered when John was born, everything will start to make sense. So let's start by reading Luke chapter 1, 57 to 66. Now, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Now let's see if we can trace these events. Zechariah and Elizabeth are childless and have now reached old age. When Zechariah, who was a priest, was given his once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to burn incense in the holy place of the temple, Gabriel, the angel of God, came and announced that Elizabeth would become pregnant in her old age. You know, Zechariah was both astonished and unbelieving. And so from that moment until this, he has been mute, unable to speak. But now Elizabeth has given birth to a boy. Her neighbors and relatives have heard our text says that the Lord has shown her great mercy. And that doesn't mean that the neighbors and relatives didn't know she was pregnant until now. Please remember that Elizabeth has been very open about her pregnancy from the fifth month onward. And please also remember that when old women have children, the chances of complications and genetic defects and 
even the death of the child, well, those are greatly enhanced chances. But no such complications now. Elizabeth is fine, and the baby boy is absolutely healthy. Clearly, God has shown her great mercy. Now, it appears that the boy still doesn't have a name. So on the eighth day, he comes to be circumcised, and given in that culture, as in ours, children would normally be named at their birth, and yet the name is still not given. So why? I mean, is there some kind of hesitancy? And Luke doesn't tell us. So on the day of his circumcision, Elizabeth announces the name. It's going to be John. And the relatives resist, unlike our day, where at least, so it seems to me, We make up names we've never heard of before, and they don't necessarily reflect either our family or our culture. But in that day, names were carefully chosen to reflect the family. And so, and this is funny because it's clear from the text that Zechariah was only mute. I mean, he could hear, but, you know, people are making signs to him as if if he can't hear as well. But he asked for a writing tablet, and I have no doubt he's been using that tablet now for nine months. And, of course, he writes the name of the boy, John. The name the angel has revealed to him. And with that act of faith, Zechariah suddenly, miraculously, begins to speak. His tongue is set free. You know, the text says he spoke blessing God. Indeed, what follows tells us exactly what it is that Zechariah said. But before telling us what he says, Luke tells us three things. First, everyone was filled with fear. So why fear? Well, because it was evident that both the name and the child had been chosen by God. That was self-evident when Zechariah was struck dumb, and it's now reinforced by the very fact that as soon as he names the child, he's suddenly able to speak. You know, second, Luke says that everyone in the region is talking about this. I mean, you know, the tongues are just set loose. People are sharing this everywhere. And third, it becomes self-evident that this child is chosen by God for some unusual purpose. See, everyone wonders what this child will become. That's to say they're assuming not that he will work hard and become anything he wants to be. Rather, they're assuming that in advance, God has already chosen him for something. His destiny is already set. Hey, are you ready for a vacation? Amidst the winter blues, take the time to join Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway for a week of fun, sun, and spiritual refreshment in the Caribbean on Royal Caribbean's Oasis of the Seas. You'll enjoy all that one of the greatest cruise ships on the seas has to offer, plus the opportunity to enjoy fellowship, worship, inspirational music, laughter, and spiritual refreshment with Phil and his Laugh Again friends, including special musical guest Rika. So make plans now to join us February 3rd to 10th, 2019 for the Laugh Again 5th Anniversary Caribbean Cruise. All the info you need can be found by either visiting laughagain.ca or calling us directly at 1-800-663-2425. Seriously, time and space are limited, so give us a call as soon as you can. We're all looking forward to seeing you on board. Now, we've noticed that Zechariah is suddenly able to speak, and, and Lucas said that he spoke blessing God. But in Luke 1.67, Luke adds that, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Now, we learned back in Luke chapter 1, verse 41, that when Mary entered into Elizabeth's house, that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And we also learned way back in Luke chapter 1, verse 15, that John was filled with the Spirit even from his mother's womb. But now the Spirit of God comes on Zechariah and causes him to prophesy. And we're reminded of Isaiah 61, verse 1, when Isaiah the prophet said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, and and then so on. That is, it is God's Spirit who fills my mouth, says Isaiah, so that the things that I say, well, they come directly from God. And by the way, that's the definition of prophecy. The Holy Spirit fills his servants and directs what they will say. Now, in the case of Zechariah, he's not a lifelong prophet, but he's a prophet in that moment. And it shows his commitment to to the revelation from the angel in the temple. And so God's Spirit descends on him, and he utters words that are inspired by God himself. Now, we can easily break his words into two units, and it is the, the first unit that I suspect is going to surprise us the most. I say that because, you know, we might expect that the very first words that come out of Zechariah's mouth would be words that would say something about what everyone's been asking. What will be the future of this child? What is God's destiny for him? Just how great is he going to be? And yet, to our surprise, Zechariah's first words have absolutely nothing to do with his son. They have everything to do with Mary's son. It's as if he ignores the baby that's right in front of him. So let's listen as Zechariah speaks, and I'm reading now from Luke chapter 1, 68 to 75. It says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now, in some ways, you know, Zechariah's song and and Mary's song, well, they're similar. I mean, for one, would you notice that Mary began with the words, my soul magnifies the Lord. That is, my soul makes much of the greatness of God. And, And Zechariah in his song begins, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. That is, God is to be honored in worship and expressing his greatness. But whereas Mary's song is first personal in that she marvels at what God has done for her, and then second, it's general in that God would topple the mighty and raise up the humble, Zechariah's song, in contrast, is not personal at all, and it deals with specifics. Notice again that Zechariah says nothing about himself or about his son John. Instead, he says that God has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David. Look, if you didn't know it, know it now. Zechariah doesn't belong to the house of David. He belongs to the house of Levi. That's the house of the priests. David was the great king of Israel. And God made David a promise that when he rested with his fathers, or that is, when when he died, that God would raise up a descendant from his line who would not only rule over Israel, but he would rule over the whole world. And that's why Zechariah speaks about the mouth of the holy prophets, That's in verse 70, and that's why he speaks in in verse 72 about God remembering his promise and then remembering his holy covenant. See, the covenant that Zechariah has in mind is called the Davidic covenant. See, in all of this, not the birth of Zechariah's son, 
but the birth of the son of David. Well, this genuinely excites Zechariah. You know, again, the reason I poured cold water on the you-can-be-anything-you-want-to-be line is because I want us to see that in contrast to a man who has just seen the, the miraculous birth of his son and then prophesies about the miraculous birth of another son. See, we're waiting for a deliverer, says Zechariah, and this, my son, that's not him. See, I can't but believe that Zechariah's influence was deeply felt in his son's life. I mean, later on, I mean, listen to John chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. It's, it's years later, and John has now become a man, and his amazing revivals are sweeping through Israel. And the passage says, and this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And that's what Zechariah is saying. Everyone's marveling at miracles. I mean, think about it. They say, think about the destiny that this boy, this son of Zechariah has. And the father begins by saying, listen, this is not the Messiah. But this is key. God, says Zechariah right now, is raising up the Messiah from the house of David. And more so, he's the horn of salvation for us. Now, if that image, you know, a horn of salvation is foreign to you, well, that's probably because you don't understand the biblical image. See, that image of a horn of salvation seems to come from, from Deuteronomy 33, verse 17. There, the image is of a wild ox who gores people who rise up against him with his horns. Uh, I know what you're thinking. Zechariah sees that the Messiah is coming, and he's going to gore the Romans and all of Israel's enemies. Well, perhaps you might think that, but look closely at what Zechariah actually says. In verse 71, he does speak about being saved from Israel's enemies, and he repeats that again in verse 74. And so, yes, I guess it's true. Zechariah does anticipate a national deliverance from Israel's enemies. But look closely at verses 74 and 75, that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. See, no doubt Zechariah is completely aware of the sad history of Israel. Whenever Israel was defeated by her enemies, it was because, according to the prophets, God had raised up her enemies against her to punish her for her sins. See, the problem with Israel was that she hadn't served God in holiness and righteousness. Indeed, Israel's track record was quite the opposite. So if salvation was to be found, something had to happen to the hearts of God's chosen people. They needed to be forgiven. They needed to be saved from their sins. And right here at this point in which Zechariah envisions God's people serving him in holiness and righteousness, Zechariah has something to say now and only now about his own son. So I'm reading now Luke chapter 1, verses 76 to 79. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. You know, the great revivals that John would later lead were never an end in themselves. They were always a preparation for something greater. 
See, John would preach a message of repentance from sins, and he called people to be baptized, to to wash away their moral filth in the expectation that the Messiah was coming. And when Jesus actually appeared on the scene, John would say of Jesus, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandal straps of that man. John would never think that he was the light. Indeed, the light would come after him. John never thought he was the salvation of Israel, but he always pointed to the one that was. See, that's what Zechariah is saying. The tender mercy of God has come in allowing my son to prepare the way for the one who has the limelight. And then in verse 80, Luke would simply end the section by saying, And the child grew, became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. That is, John lived all of his life until the beginning of his ministry, a life of preparation until God called him to the task that was to be his. Look, Zechariah's song tells us many things, not just about John, but about all of us. The best thing that any of us can ever accomplish is to be thankful for God's assigned role in our lives. But there's something also in Zechariah's song that we need to understand. Zechariah's song tells us that the best any one of us can ever accomplish is to point the finger towards Jesus and not to ourselves. Thanks for your message today, John. Just a quick question. You know, obviously there's so many good things people can do for the kingdom, but what would you say is the the most important thing people can do for the kingdom of God? Yeah, you know, see, here I think John the Baptist probably uh, shows this to us more than than, than anyone else uh, because he, he spent his lifetime pointing towards Jesus. I mean, he was the the preparer of the way. I mean, obviously, we can't prepare the way for Christ. Christ has come. Um, But his entire life is lived in this satisfaction that he would always be pointing towards Jesus so that, you know, when he becomes less and Christ becomes greater, he's he's just delighted with that. And, and, And boy, I think if we could just get that in our heart, that the greatest thing any human being can ever accomplish, my, my, the greatest thing is so that people would see less of us and more of Christ. And if that were to be said of any one of us, that would be the the life well lived. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow for our series, A Well-Researched Christmas, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Did you know that your gift of support this month will help provide the daily Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Newfeld across Canada and throughout much of Asia on the radio? Your financial gifts provide access to Bible teaching around the world through Back to the Bible Canada's daily broadcast and all of our online resources like our mobile app and podcast. Your gifts also support the Ministry of Laugh Again, which is a daily program that brings a message of hope and joy that's found in Christ. Plus, your support also helps our young adult ministry, In Doubt, which exists to bring God's truth to the relevant issues of life and faith that young adults face every day through a weekly podcast. These are just a few of the ministries that you help provide when you give to Back to the Bible Canada. 
a ministry whose primary goal is to teach the Bible. This December, would you help us reach our year-end goal of $427,000 so that we can start off strong in 2019? Join us in sharing the light of Christ to a world in darkness. To donate today, call 1-800-663-2425 or give online at backtothebible.ca.